Hi everyone, this is your host Harmit, and you're listening to Tobin Talks. Thank you so much for tuning into Tobin Talks today. I'm your host, Harmit, and today's an exciting day. First, we'll discuss the rise in academic misconduct at the U of M and the ethics behind cheating. Keep listening to learn about how ChatGPT could tie into this in the future. Later on, we get excited about Trouble in Mind, a dramedy that explores the day-to-day realities of racism. First up, we have news reporter Ashley interviewing Arthur Schaefer about the ethics of academic misconduct. Arthur Schaefer is the founding director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the U of M, and he's a prof in the philosophy department. Uh, I'd like to make it split, but um, what's wrong with cheating? Those are taking unfair advantage of their fellow students. Those who cheat successfully manage to get uh, unfair access to additional schools, employment, uh, graduate programs, scholarships, fellowships. So the victims, when students cheat, are other students. We live in a society in which it often seems as if everyone is seeking an edge. It's a highly competitive, individualistic society, a society in which the rewards for academic success are high, the punishment for academic failure is low, having a GPA that's um, even at a fraction of a of a percentage point lower than someone else, may mean the difference between a career in uh, in medicine or law or engineering and being excluded from those professions. So the the culture tells us repeatedly in all sorts of ways, direct and indirect, that the worst thing but is to be a loser. Why? and that the rewards for being a winner are dramatic. Rule-breaking in a situation where rule-breaking, if it can be done successfully, if the likelihood of, det- I think the likelihood of protection is a major deterring factor. If the likelihood of detection goes down, if the rewards go up because admission to graduate programs and professional programs then, employment opportunity seems to be shrinking rather than expanding, then the the, uh, potential incentives to cheat will also go up. Now, you're asking me about the ethics of it. So, they're really three separate questions. Do cheaters prosper? That's the prudential question. Second question is, should I cheat? Can I live with my conscience? Yeah, and yeah, for sure. And I was also wondering if you could touch on, too, like, what maybe would the ethics of using AI for assignments, kind of? It wouldn't be cheating if it were, if the rules permitted it. So one way of, of preventing uh, an increase of cheating via the use of uh, that BPT is to credit 
then it wouldn't be rule-breaking. It wouldn't be cheated. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me go back a step. I think when students plagiarize, if they're plagiarizing from Wikipedia or the Internet or ChatGPT or from a published author, it's almost always obvious. Yeah. So only a naive student would cheat would would simply cut and paste someone else's work when when the someone else is a professional writer or a professional scholar because it doesn't read like Steve's work. Yeah, it reads like a textbook. And no professor worth her salt or his salt uh, would be taken in. Now, not always easy to prove the source of the of the uh, plagiarism, but. That work has been plagiarized is usually fairly readily detected. I don't think it is or will become much of a threat to academic integrity. Yeah. But of course, if the software improves and becomes more sophisticated, influences use of word choice of the sort that a student might make, I mean, one can rule that out. I don't know if we're there yet. I don't think we are. Okay, so now I want to say, if you accept that that's really unfair, then there is an obligation, I would say, on the part of professors to set exams, uh, to set essays or questions that can uh, easily be plagiarized. And that's not so difficult to do. Yeah. First of all, you can set the exams in person. You can, you can have students write under supervision. But if students are going to be doing major research at home or in the library or wherever, uh, it's possible for professors not to ask a standard question where it's easy to find essays online or to have an essay custom written for you by chat GPT. If, if your uh, essay assignment or your research assignment are tailored to your course material that, that your students will have read, but that won't be readily acceptable, or in, if the questions involve a kind of understanding and interpretation and uh, creative intelligence that can't easily be simulated, can't easily be picked off the shelf and submitted as the students work, uh, then students will do their own work. So I want to say that students have an obligation, a moral obligation, not to take unfair advantage of their fellow students. But I want to say that professors have an obligation. And long before ChatGPT, you could buy essays online, you could find them online, you could get them from this course or similar courses in the past, you could get someone else to write your essays. Well, they do. I mean, they're there are many, many ways of cheating, and ChatGPT doesn't really introduce much that, that's uh, radically different from the common garden variety cheating in the past. Indeed, everyone's willing to, to cheat, to take unfair advantage in academic circumstances, but in any situation. It depends heavily on a culture in which this choice is taking place. So if you if you believe that 
everyone else is doing, the likelihood that you will do it is much increased. And most students, like most people, uh, don't want to be martyrs. They don't want to be the only ones playing by the rules when everyone else is cheating. Perceived, why do we believe that everyone's cheating? Then I think that belief would be self-fulfilling. That is, more and more students would be seduced into submitting work that isn't their own, that is on Yeah. And if the prevailing culture of the university is one where the norm, the expected behavior, and the widespread behavior detects the value of academic integrity, then I think there will still be cheaters, but there'll be in a small and probably insignificant minority. Yeah. So the job of the university as an institution and the university professors is to protect academic integrity generally. Impossible to prevent cheating from ever occurring, but to make it, to make the likelihood of detection high enough and the rewards from cheating low enough so that students know that they won't be unfairly disadvantaged if they play by the rules. Yeah. Next up, we have news reporter Ashley interviewing Cheryl Zelenetsky, chair of the University Discipline Committee, about the rise in academic misconduct, as noted in the committee's report on the 2021-2022 academic year. So has academic misconduct been a big concern for U of M since the pandemic? So we did see um, an increase in academic misconduct um, with the pandemic. So there was uh, quite a peak in uh, 2019-2020 uh, academic year. There was an increase of about 40% uh, of academic misconduct. So I guess that's it. You know, since then, I can just speak a little bit to the trend. So um, since then, there's been two complete academic years. In both of those years, um, the numbers were still up, but trending down uh, slowly, about 10% have come down. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And then does the university think the pandemic um, exacerbated the issue of early cheats? Right now, we only have our, our previous years, like even the, the current report. So that was for the academic of years 2021-2022. So just to clarify that, that those numbers are still pretty much during the pandemic when there was a lot of um, online-based uh, teaching and assessment. So the current year is the first back in person for all intents and purposes. So the next report will come out in the fall, and that will cover September 2022 to August 2023. So we don't yet have a post, you know, back to in-person um, data. So we're still looking at being within COVID as far as my reports are. You know, certainly 
the pandemic did have an effect. And especially that first year, so 2019, 2020, as you uh, would know um, there was a very rapid transition from in-person teaching and learning and examinations and assessment right to online. So we do feel that there, you know, there was a, a high peak of what we consider cheating uh, during that first pandemic year, um, and that would be, you know, that cheating is really circumventing the fair testing procedures or breaking exam regulations. So probably um, there was a link with students not being in person and taking exams. You know, the association is, is fairly clear that there was a, a change at that time. Yeah, for sure. And then, so would you, like, agree with, the, like, the statement that the university expects a level of academic misconduct to go down now that we're back in person? Well, you know, we're we're hoping that, right? So I I think we can't uh, jump to conclusions until we do have that at, at, at least a, a year of data where we're back in person. So um, you know, again, we none of us know, but um, we certainly hope to see that. Lastly, arts reporter Jesse interviews Teresa Richards, Trouble in Mind director, about the play and its background. So, uh, we're here to speak about that play, Trouble in Mind. It has a very interesting history. I was wondering if you could share some of what you know about it. Yeah, Alice Childress was actually supposed to be one of was supposed to be the first African American um, playwright to be debuted on Broadway in the fifties, and uh, she's quite a pl- prolific writer. She wrote many many plays, and this play was supposed to be her first big Broadway debut. But when it got to production, the uh, powers that be said that um, they needed to make that ending happier and more palatable to white audiences and she refused to budge and so because of that she she didn't she decided i think she in she had made changes and then in the last minute decided nope she was standing by her laurels and decided not to you know give in to the man and uh she (laughs) decided not to change them and in, in the end it was um um you know lorraine hansberry's guess who's coming today or that got that honor so she really had to fight or she she really really had to establish that she had a specific vision that she wanted to be honored. Yeah, I think, you know, like any good playwright, she uh, was always she was ahead of her time. Just like, you know, this is the kind of play that, you know, what is it? 68 years later is still true, still rings true. The themes are still relevant. And, you know, I don't know whether that speaks to good writing or just this, that, you know, depressing state of our world, <laughs> or the cyclical nature of the and cyclical repetitive nature of history. But, um, you know, I think it, it does speak to her writing. She's an incredible playwright. This play is super dense mm-hmm. and um, it really speaks to our times that we're in. And I mean, you know, we're dealing with many of the issues that uh, Childress would have been dealing with in her time. And, and it's been fascinating working on this play with this incredible troupe of actors is that, you know, even it's a microcosm of the in of a backstage, like a bird's eye view of how a rehearsal room works. 
And I find myself saying the things that the director says of the play and the actors and I are responding in the same. So it's very meta. That's what we call call it when life meets art meets life. It's very meta, this play. And it's uh, a real mind numbing experience. <laughs> it <laughs> throws us all into chaos. <laughs> throws, gives you some trouble in mind, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> so that's actually a bit validating to hear because I read a little bit of the play just to prepare for the interview, although I didn't want to spoil the whole thing. I want to experience it for the first time on stage. But I noticed, or, well, maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, but I, I felt like theater was very important to not just the characters, but to the play itself. It, it, like you say, it's very meta. Um, did you have any other comments on that, on the way that theater is important to this play? I think it's like this play is important to all of us right now, especially you know, the black actors and our creators in the room. But also every I think everybody who's involved in this play is, is is involved just as the actors in those days were passionate about the work they were doing. We are so passionate about the work we are doing. It's very rare that you see a black female playwright getting produced in in our canon and in our theater canon and in the shows that we produce across the country. And it's also rare that we have female black directors being heralded up to, um, you know, the main stage, the big, the big time. And um, and I think uh, it's exciting to see this caliber of work, this st style of play, the words that are written. And I think all of us in this play, from designers to the director, to the actors, to the stage managers, like we feel the importance of it, but also are, are you know, beyond the importance, because importance, importance of plays, quote unquote, can be... Um, a daunting and unforgiving task and what's more interesting to me and I think the group of us is like is is how incredible the message is and how beautifully human these people are we see th this troop of actors really you know fighting for their passions in this room to create great art and which is what we are doing at the same time. And I think that's the exciting thing about this place to see how these characters, you know, fight for what they want, fight each other, fight for themselves, you know, fall or, or succeed in their own efforts and and battle their own insecurities and fears, just as we all do as actors and artists. It sounds like the experience has been really energizing for the production team and the cast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think everybody's you know, people were all in when they when 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 we got this play. I mean, I came to the play quite late, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that the artists and, and troop of actors and designers, you know, when they read the script, they're like, "Ooh, this is there's something here that we're we, we, we can get behind. Yeah, that's awesome. So you mentioned that the play obviously has themes that are still relevant today in spite of being um, like over 60 years old. I was wondering if maybe you think that the play can tell us anything about the future of Black theater or theater for Black women writers, for Black women actors, uh, Black women directors, if you had any ways that you think it's maybe taking the temperature for things to come. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the director in the play is a white man who is directing this troupe of actors. She's making a very specific commentary on the way that white uh, people view black artists at the time and the way the the heightened minstrel version of the way that this white a white director wanted these act black actors to perform and you know says that this is an important play but we can't be but I but you can't be too black and you can't we can't deal with the truth of the moment because because white audiences can't handle that so I think that commentary on what the play is dealing with 
is true for us too. You know, we 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 don't want to sermonize to audiences, but also these these uh, messages and and political issues in the play are are happening today. I mean, you know, with the with the death recent death of Tyree Nichols, you know, we are are that, that's the same thing that was happening back then. And, you know, I think what great plays like this do for us in our time is hold the mirror up to our audiences to say, this is what we're dealing with. It's not telling us how to deal with it or what they should be doing, but it's showing a mirror up to the audience to say, this is what's happening in the world back then. Isn't it wild that it's still happening today? Mm-hmm. And it's up to the audience to go away and take that and think, hmm, yeah, yeah, it's true. That is what we're dealing with today what's my part to play in that you know and and then hopefully give them a little laugh and and fun along the way as well and i think that's what great theater does is it allows us to go away thinking about the themes of the play and thinking what's my part in the world that i'm playing in that you actually answered my next question which was is there anything that you hope the audience will gain and i guess it sounds like you're hoping it will maybe spur people on to act or to learn yeah you know my favorite thing about plays like this is going away. I love hearing audiences going away. Oh, I want to Google that or oh, I want to look that up or wow, I didn't know that about that playwright. Let me, you know, like, and it inspires you to go do your own research into the play and maybe do your own research into what is happening in the world uh, in social justice at the moment and what what we can do, you know, to make sure that that isn't happening in our world or if it, but it obviously is happening. So what's my part to play in the issues at hand and how can I pitch in and or how can I create more art that tells these stories or support great art that tells these stories so that they don't go unheard? You know, uh, artists of color and, and works of, our, uh, uh, you know, art of color has not been celebrated for many, many years. And we are seeing a uh, an upswing of inviting artists of color to the table and telling having their stories told. And I think, you know, what I'm excited also is to know what are our Canadian stories of color you know this is a very beautiful African-American playwright and and I think the message is incredible and the storytelling is sublime but what are our stories and how do we tell our Canadian stories that are just as as visceral just as prescient as the stories that we're telling in this play Mm. but the black community in Canada is often completely excluded from like theatrical and literary canons uh from the impression that I get yeah, you know, we see a lot. We see some new works coming up in Toronto and uh, in other places around the country. But you know, we're we're quite disparate. And uh, as Black artists, you know, there's uh, there's not many Black artists in our community. In, in the theater here, we have like a uh, barely a handful of Black artists in Winnipeg. Uh, even though we have a quite a thriving black community. So, you know, it really tells you, you know, where are these stories? Where do we find them? I was always told as a young artist, don't wait for somebody to tell your story, write them yourselves and get them produced. And so, you know, what I feel the excitement and pleasure of and, and the ownership of is to be able to tell these stories and to be in a place as a director to be able to tell these stories and have these stories told on our stages. And, you know, I've had a long history as an artist. I've been in the industry for over 20 years as an actor and in the last six years as a director and playwright. And, you know, I'm really passionate about telling my stories from my, you know, Black Canadian heritage. And, uh, you know, my father is from Trinidad. My mother is German Mennonite. And, you know, those are some very 
rich cultural interweavings that happen in my body. And so, you know, I, I, I bring my lived reality to every project I do. You know, a great black director from Toronto, Phil Aiken, always said, every play I direct is a black play because I'm black. And that's, I bring my lived reality to it. And I think that's very true. You know, whether it's uh, uh, a race, a play about racism, whether it's a, a play about anything, you know, we as artists bring who we are to these parts. And I think that's what's exciting about this new movement in theater is that we are seeing more artists of color on stage, backstage, in places of power, you know, and 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 that's then we get to we get to see different stories being told. And uh, and I think it's really exciting. Beautiful. I, had to, I, hope to see, I hope to see more of it. Yes. Um, so I had to restrain myself from snapping. You're, that was so perfect <laughs> and poignant. Um, so that's it for my questions. Is there anything you wanted to add that we haven't covered yet? No, I don't think so. I just think like I'm, you know, the other the other missing part, I don't know if I mentioned, is that, you know, this is a black female playwright directed by a black female director. Writ- and the story is centered on a black female actor. You know, and I think the trifecta of that is something we haven't seen yet in on the MTC stages, and uh, and and that's although I think Color Purple was was uh, was a, another black female playwright director centered on a black uh, woman's story, and so I think it's beautiful to see black you know black women. Mal- what is it? Malcolm X said the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Malcolm X said that in 1962 in one of his speeches. And I think it's absolutely true. You know, uh, black women's stories are not told. Indigenous women's stories are not told. You know, Filipino women's stories are not told. Like, I think that, you know, we, we, but I, as, as a black woman, I'm very much aware that my stories are, uh, can often go unheard and untold. So it's, uh, I think that's what's exciting about this story that we have this black playwright, black director, black female lead in this story. And we're all working together to uplift her voice. Alana Bridgewater is an incredible musical theater actor who is coming to, you know, play the role of Willetta in this story. And she is full of power and ferocity and to see her journey from the beginning to to, till now is uh, really exciting, encouraging, uplifting and inspiring. And it's so exciting to be able to be there to herald her along that journey. And and, and this entire cast is they're just strong and supportive and, and all in. I think that's the most exciting thing about it is everybody is all in. And you have a group of people working together who are that passionate about a project. You can't, we can't lose. Yeah. Perfect. Trouble in Mind runs at the Royal MTC until March 11th. Make sure you get your tickets by visiting royalmtc.ca. Just a reminder that if you ever have any suggestions or feedback for people who you'd like to see on the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you want to send in any of your poetry, short stories, 
any of those types of things, please email me at audio at themanitoban.com. You can find Tobin Talks Thursdays at 1130 on 101.5 FM radio, which is UMFM radio. And you can listen to us anytime on all of your podcast streaming services, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it for today, and we'll see you on the next episode of Tobin Talks.